Hey, friends and family. Sorry I've been gone for a while. My wife had surgery, and I've been taking care of her, and she's doing great, so you don't have to worry. But we have some good stuff to cover today. I got a video to review and a challenge that I've accepted. We're going to go ahead and argue our case against whole life. We've been picking on IUL, indexed universal life for a while, um, and a man specifically by the name of Doug Andrew, who we think is probably the only person actually making money from index universal life because he's taking everyone else's money. So let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back. Please, before we begin, make sure to smash that like button for the YouTube algorithm. It helps us out tremendously. With your support, we can try our best to spread this information of good personal finance habits and financial literacy to as many people as we possibly can. So I ran across this guy. His, he's, uh, his channel's called Life 180. What he did is he kind of had a beef with how Dave Ramsey um, kind of criticized whole life insurance. And since he's a whole life insurance salesperson, He's got some opinions about how Dave Ramsey responded. And um, full disclosure, when Dave Ramsey originally came out against whole life insurance, my first thought was I have to figure out why this is something I should get into because, you know, I have that tendency of like, oh, Dave Ramsey said not to do it, so I must, I have to take a look. And I started off thinking that maybe whole life had some kind of application and some purpose, and I was having a really hard time identifying what that purpose is. So in this video, this guy named Chris, he attempts to kind of propose a purpose for us that we can go off of, um, and yeah, I'm not going to talk anymore about it. Let's watch it. Um, I, after the video, I have a breakdown of his data, and we're going to take a look at that, but we'll first watch um, at least some small segments of his video, and we'll at least react to his video first, and then we'll get to that good stuff on the tail end. So stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. Dave Ramsey loves to spend a lot of time bashing on whole life insurance, and I've been pretty bold in my stance that Dave is either flat out lying to people, or he's completely naive and ignorant to the facts of how whole life insurance actually works. I don't think that he... Like, based off of Dave's answers, I have to agree a little bit. The answers that he gives are a little bit weird. I disagree with whole life insurance, but not for the reason that Dave Ramsey does. I don't like his responses to it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so I'm not going to really address Dave's kind of responses. I just want to look at um, Chris's arguments for why we should use whole life. And I want to break down his data and his numbers um, so that we can see that it's probably not a solution for most of us. And I will acknowledge that if it's not done properly, Dave is right in a lot of ways. This has always bothered me. If it's not done properly, if you don't have the right agent, you don't have the right company, it, it allows for a lot of areas where you could get tricked, scammed. Um, I mean, it's just not a good way of doing business where you're like, you can do it, but you have to be really specific about it. I've never liked that. Not only that, but insurance agents are often incentivized not to give you the best plan. So... That's not helpful either. And I always kind of say, Dave speaks from a scarcity mindset and Dave speaks from a very short term mindset actually. I left that in there to respond to it because I thought that was really weird. Scarcity mindset is when you believe that there's a limited number of resources and you have to use what you have as wisely as possible to ensure that you don't lose everything. It's like holding everything too close to your chest um, instead of like doing the right thing, which is to realize that you could invest and build more wealth. If anything, I think Chris is actually coming in at the more scarcity mindset than Dave Ramsey, which I know is unbelievable because Dave Ramsey is like, no debt, don't look at anyone funny, 
you know, pay off your mortgage. But then he does say invest on the tail end. And Chris is going to argue here that the market volatility is equal to risk. Uh, I mean, we'll get into like Chris's stuff and I'll kind of respond to it, but you're going to see he has more of a scarcity mindset than Dave Ramsey here. Like if Dave Ramsey's on the conservative end and I'm like, you could be a little bit less conservative. You don't have to be risky, but maybe a little bit less conservative. Chris is like, nah, you got to be like way over here and you got to pay someone to ensure that you're safe, which sounds like a crazy scarcity mindset, but we'll get there. What I did is I put together an illustration um, because I wanted to show this illustration as kind of like an apples to apples conversation. And I wanted to like, I, I built this and I wanna have this conversation through the lens of if I were showing it to Dave, what would Dave say to me? What would Dave be being like, no, this is a ripoff because. See, we got a 45, 46 year old. So I basically said, all right, this person's 45 standard non-tobacco. We didn't do anything crazy. We did a standard non-tobacco uh, policy. I assume this person was a Dave Ramsey follower, right? And so they had had an emergency fund kind of saved up. I assume that they had $60,000 uh, sitting in a bank account or some maybe a CD or some kind of safe money of that nature. And uh, that was that. Now I'm also assuming that they're affording $1,000 a month or $12,000 a year uh, of, of deposits going into this account. That's a crazy high amount of money to be putting in here. And you're going to see the returns and you're going to be like, why are we putting so much money into some place that doesn't have good returns? I don't know the answer to that question. He's going to try and give one and we'll get there. But holy smokes, do you have to start off with like 72 grand? That's your emergency fund. You have to give it over to the insurance company. And then you have to put in another $1,000 a month. Like who's sitting on $1,000 a month? to be able to put into this. But something I want you guys to notice, and I'll put it up on the screen here. If you look at the columns that are here, you see on the left-hand side, there's a guaranteed, and on the right-hand side is non-guaranteed assumptions, 100% of current dividend scale. And what that means is that they're assuming that they're gonna be able to pay out. And on the left-hand side is what you're actually guaranteed to get. So if the dividend scale doesn't work, you're not getting as high dividends, you could end up with what's on the left-hand side. And there's something really interesting about this illustration that is, you know, he doesn't address this, so I don't have anything to like look over it. But if you look at the cumulative premium, that is um, right in the middle there. That's how much money you totally have put in um, per year. So like at year 15, for example, the person has put in nearly $240,000. If you look to the left at net cash value in the guaranteed section of 15 years, it's $205,000. So somewhere along the line, we lost $35,000. He's going to go all the way through a 30-year time frame, and not once does the guarantee ever go above the amount of money that the person put in. That wasn't really addressed here by him at all. I think that's interesting, though, that your guarantee is to actually be less. Like, you're guaranteed that you can never go too low, but you're never guaranteed that you could actually keep your money at the value your actual cash is. I don't know about that. So what else is interesting about this is that um, the cumulative premium is not near that guaranteed net cash value. If you notice that like you can't, you can't look at them side by side. I think that's purposeful. I don't think they want to like highlight the fact that, you know, down all these columns here, there's the possibility that you actually end up negative from when you started. I don't, I don't think that's the goal. Dave always says, why would you put your money into a whole life policy? Because all a whole life policy is, is trying to be 
both uh, insurance and an investment at the same time, and it does poorly at both. It is not the case. Um, life insurance, whole life insurance specifically, it, whole life insurance doesn't have the same risk profile as an investment. It is not an investment. It doesn't have the same uh, upside as an investment uh, would have because it's got guarantees. It's got a better floor. You can't lose money. And so when you look at a whole life policy, what you have to be thinking about is how is, uh, is what is the role that this money is playing in my life? And now the funny part is, is Dave will tell you that you need to have an emergency fund, right? Um, and so from there, uh, what I will say is like, when you look at this, I want you to compare this not to your investment alternative, but I want you to compare it to uh, a savings alternative. Okay, I'd argue that they're the same thing. A savings and an investment is the same thing. There's investments like, I mean, at what point do we say something is not an investment because the downside is just like the fees you're paying to an insurance company and the upside is a really small return, so it's not actually an investment? I, that seems really semantic to me. If you're putting your money places, you're putting your money places for purposes. And he did highlight here a smidgen like, okay, well, you could use it for like everyone needs a an emergency fund. You can use this for your emergency fund. And I have beef with that because I don't put 12 grand in my emergency fund annually. I have enough in my emergency fund to get by, right? So I'm counting on a few things like maybe some... Uh, some unemployment insurance. If you know, I ever got to that point, um, maybe I would be underemployed for a while, but at least I'd find cash. I also have real estate income. And then lastly, I have like six months worth of emergency fund to ensure that I'm set, but I don't plan to keep adding to that year over year over year. I'm taking every other dollar I have and I'm investing it as fast as humanly possible. So the idea of using an emergency fund where you're just dumping 12 grand into it every year because you have to, because the plan is set up that way, you don't have a choice. He's going to cover that you can, you know, sometimes go lower than 12 grand. Like there is, there's some flexibility there, but you don't have a choice. You have to follow this all the way through. And so like, you know, what's the point of growing an emergency fund when you could be investing into something with a higher return, right? That seems a little bit weird. So he's saying like, you know, consider it a savings. It's a savings alternative, but I'm not dumping 12 grand in my savings every year. If you look at this, Year one, I'm, I'm saying like, let's say you're at 45 years old, you had 60,000 in a bank and you could afford $1,000 a month. Um, that means $72,000 would go in year one because I would have you take that 60,000 in your bank, in your savings account, and I would put it into this policy. Why would I do that? Because if I'm doing that, now I'm picking up $973,000 in death benefit, okay? So what that can do is whatever term expense you have, if you have a need for a million dollars of insurance, well, that's pretty much gets you there. If you have a need for more insurance, well, then you would supplement term insurance above and beyond this, whatever you need. But when you see what I'm about to show you from a long-term perspective, I think what you're going to see is it becomes a big no-brainer. I honestly don't care about the insurance part. Like if it was me and I needed insurance, I would go and get term insurance. The insurance part doesn't sell me. I'm worth enough that if I were to die, my family would have plenty to be able to take care of themselves. So the insurance part is kind of irrelevant to me. He's covered this in a few other episodes where he's like, when you're young, you know, you may not need insurance, but it's good to have it. So you might as well start in whole life when you're young. And then when you have a family, then you might need insurance. And then when you get older, I mean, maybe you need insurance because, you know, I don't, I don't know. You didn't invest enough. I, I would much rather just invest. I just have that, I can use that 
for pretty much everything. So I'm not really buying the insurance part. I don't care. Um, the other part of that is that if you looked at the numbers, you lost like six grand initially. So that first year, the cash value is actually negative six grand. So that insurance cost you $6,000. Term insurance for the same person for the same amount of money is like 20 times cheaper. That means it will take you 20 years to catch up. And he's going to argue here pretty soon that, you know, well, the cash value is going to increase at enough rate that it doesn't matter. It'll offset. But like any investment could increase at a rate that's higher, that's much higher than whole life even. So I'm not, I don't, I don't buy that one. This is just really expensive life insurance, but essentially we're paying for a savings account that doesn't perform. And we'll, we'll cover those numbers. I'll get there. Now, out of this, you know, why would I put $72,000 in there in the account to get $973,000 of death benefit? That just seems like a ripoff. Well, you're not really putting 72,000 in. Yes, you are. But this becomes a banking alternative. Your $65,957 is your net cash value. That is the amount of money you have in your policy with the ability to access that money in case of emergency, in case of opportunity, whatever it is for you. So yeah, like we're just gonna, we're like essentially what you're doing is you're overpaying the insurance company. And if the insurance company does well, they will pay you back for having had your money in their account is essentially what you're doing. So like, imagine if you were to pay a credit card company way too much money, like a credit card, you owed a hundred bucks, but you paid like $500. And instead of like handing you that money back, they just held it and they added interest to it over time. And then we just pretended like that was a savings account. The only difference here is that that cost us a lot of money up front. And if you know anything about compound interest, the amount of money up front is the most important part. So if we're losing money up front, we're taking the most tremendous hit on our compounding over time by paying the insurance company that money ahead of time in order to get what he's calling long-term benefits. And we'll get there, we'll cover those. And so your real net cost is, you know, just about 6,000 bucks, right? Cause you're about, let's just call that 66,000 for round numbers. So you lost liquidity of $6,000, but you paid uh, $973,000. Now, Dave would also probably say, well, $6,000 for a million dollars of coverage is a ripoff. Um, to that, you know, you could go get a 10-year term policy much cheaper to that accord, I would agree. Um, but that's, once again, I said it in the intro, you can't solve long-term problems with short-term thinking. So you are losing a little liquidity, but that is not the actual cost. You have to think from a long-term perspective and realize you're investing in a plan. Are we investing now and not saving, right? It's real easy to switch those terms because as it turns out, investing is basically just putting your money anywhere and hoping that you get some kind of return for it. Um, and it could be in a savings account. Apparently it could be in whole life and it could be in the markets. It could be in real estate. It could be in bucket tons of places. It could be in currency itself. We can invest in someone, other country's money if we really felt like it. Um, yeah, I have a problem with how much this is costing me. And you know what he's gonna say is like the growth in the account is gonna get to the point where it offsets the fact that we just coughed up a bunch of money. But he's not gonna tell you that you paid a tremendous opportunity cost, right? So that's really short-term thinking. If you're like, you know, look, this thing will eventually balance itself out if you chuck enough money at it to the point where that money could have gone somewhere else and received way more returns. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't mathematically make sense. Now, by year six, we've contributed 12,000 here again. The policy is growing by 14,473. 
and we have $131,388. Now we have a million $1,067,000. That's an average of $102 a year after the net cash value for $167,000. So he's just showing here, like at this point we ended up even. And he does this weird kind of flip floppy thing where he's like, you know, I understand the insurance is expensive, but look at the cash value. And then you're like, ah, the cash value is not performing. And I understand it's not performing, but look at the death benefit. In reality, the cash value part is really underperforming to the point where you don't really see your money balance out until year seven. Just balance, just be what it is that you put into it until year seven. So during the best compounding interest times, which is the earliest times possible that you could be putting money into the market, you've given it over to this insurance company to hold on to it until year seven, when you finally get to the point where you're just even. And you're doing all that so that you can have this savings account and this death benefit that you could have got for like hundreds of dollars a year, like 300 bucks a year, I think for a 46 year old. Like $300, right? So six grand, $300. It will take 20 years for me to get to the point paying $300 a year to get to the point where I even get to 6,000. 20 years in term life to even get to that point. You lost that in year one and you're paying a tremendous opportunity cost. He's not gonna cover the opportunity cost at all. That's not a thing in his head. We're gonna cover it at the end here, so stick around. Look at the different functions that it's getting. I've basically paid at this point in time $102 a year for a million dollars of insurance, which by the way is cheaper than any term policy is gonna be on average over that period of time for, for, for this kind of coverage, for a million dollars of coverage. See, he just skips the opportunity cost right there. I paid like $100 a year by year seven, right? Because that's how low you're underneath that amount or year six or whatever it was if you divided it for insurance, except for the fact that you lost tens of thousands of dollars in opportunity cost. So this thing actually cost you tens of thousands of dollars to get a product that costs most people 300 bucks a year. But who's getting that tens of thousands of dollars? It's not us, it's not him. Well, maybe it is him if he's taking the commissions. I don't know. You got $12,000 a year, that's a ripoff, right? Like what if you can't afford it? The problem is your policy is gonna run into problems and if you can't afford it, uh, then your policy is gonna lapse and then the insurance company is gonna screw you over and you're gonna lose, uh, you're gonna lose the, the money there. And so what I wanna show you here is that there is flexibility in here. Um, the minimum premium, or the, the, the premium that's scheduled here is the $11,999.96, effectively 12,000 bucks but you could pay as little as $5,378 in this policy and you can be uh, without issue. And furthermore, at, there are different features that you could do. You could utilize things like a premium offset, meaning check this out, your minimum payment of, was just under $6,000. Well, look here, the annual dividend, right, of $6,000 here, once you hit year nine, all you have to do is say, I wanna use a premium offset and I'm gonna have my dividend pay for my premium and you don't have to come out of pocket anymore for this policy. So he's a good salesman. He's spinning this really interestingly. If you can't afford the 12 grand in a single year, because maybe you ran into some financial trouble, it's okay. We'll go ahead and just take what is equivalent to a car payment from you instead. Right. It's like 500 bucks a month. It's, it's fine. We'll take 500 bucks a month from you. Not that big of a deal. It's only like more than most people pay for a car payment. Right. And then if you can't pay that, within the first few years, this whole thing collapses. You lose everything if you can't afford to pay that. It all falls apart. But he's like, don't worry. 
The non-guaranteed, right? You could even see it at the top of the of the video. The non-guaranteed amount of returns eventually can go ahead and pay the premium for you. So you don't actually have to worry about paying it if you run into any problems, which means your, uh, your plan won't collapse, which is outstanding. But that also means that you put in nearly $200,000 in to be able to have a self-sustaining insurance plan right? That's all it is. Like you tied up 200 grand to be able to create enough dividend returns in a non-guaranteed dividend return to be able to pay for an insurance plan on itself, right? That's crazy considering that I will pay like six grand on my term for 20 years and that's it, right? 200 grand to six grand. So no, you, you lose out on the opportunity cost of what that 200 grand could do for you just to be able to have a self-sustaining insurance plan. Someone's making a bucket ton of money here and it's not us. Chances are that 20 year term at 65, if you still needed it, would be wicked expensive and you wouldn't do it. Uh, the goal would be to be self-insured, which I think is a broke person's mindset way of thinking because wealthy people uh, understand uh, that if you want to create something of significance, you're probably going to create an estate tax issue. And so the best way to handle estate tax problems is to pass on your net worth uh, to the next generation through the form of life insurance in a tax-free basis. Nope, that's not true. So what I'm noticing a lot about people who are into whole life or who are selling whole life is that they really only know about their product and then they know talking points around their product and they don't know what actually occurs outside of their product. So in this case, the term life insurance for like a 65 year old is not costing what the opportunity cost is for this plan. Not even close. You could get one if you wanted to. I think it costs a couple thousand bucks a year. That's it's still cheaper than this. And if you count the opportunity cost of missing out on tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, as you're going to see pretty soon here. Yeah, it's way cheaper to just get term insurance, like for pretty much the extent of your life, it's cheaper, right? Than it is to get whole life insurance. But the other thing is, though rich people, yes, they do buy life insurance in order to pass off money. But go Google what the estate tax is and when that number starts. Because it turns out it's almost $13 million. So in his plan here, he's worried about transferring a million. That's the plan. Or a couple hundred thousand dollars. And he's worried that like, oh, no, if I transfer this, you know, I'm going to get taxed on it. But he's not. And so like if the rich people are really using this above $13 million so that they can transfer wealth without getting taxed on it. Good for them. I'm sure that works out. The most of us won't be transferring over $13 million to an individual person. It just isn't going to happen, right? And I don't think he knows that because he's saying that we're going to pay taxes on like a hundred grand. I don't think he understands that that's not taxed. That, that when you die, it just goes to your family. There's no estate tax there. Like I'm going to just do this math, right? So I'm going to go, uh, let's, let's, and this is a way that people need to look because it's really hard to calculate what is the return on this when you're looking at the 444 and then you're saying, okay, well, it grew. Uh, this is the net increase, but I also contributed premium to it. So let's just see, once this policy is completely paid up at 76 years old, and I could pay this up earlier, but this is when it's just fully paid. Um, I just wanna use this example. I could see that this policy grew. You could see the net increase in cash value, this column, and the net cash value there. So you can see, I didn't pay any premiums this year. So there's no, every, the only growth of this policy is straight from the guarantees and the dividends combined right? And I got, I got $29,000 of growth. So it's a basically 
percent return on that every single year, guaranteed, tax-free. That's the equivalent of just over a five percent, you know, five five and a half percent taxable account. Oh, Three point seven seven on the final years, which means that he's not actually accounting for the returns or lack of returns at the beginning of this plan, due to the fact that a lot of your money is being taken from you in the form of fees and commissions, and that's all front-loaded during the time when your returns matter the most. It's why the returns don't look very good towards the end there. They actually look pretty bad. And if we were to consider the fact that we just came off of one of the world's United States's largest economic runs, like greatest uh, bull runs of all time, and you were to get 3.77%, that's the best you can do. And I'm going to show you it's actually less than that. You're, you're not even keeping up with inflation at this point. You're losing money by going into this plan, and you're tied into it. You have to keep paying it. Otherwise, you're not getting these benefits. It's not happening. Now, here's the deal. If I could borrow against this money at 4% and I could access and, and I, my money can grow at that level uh, of 3.77%, well, my net cost to borrow, I'm not actually utilizing my own money. I'm utilizing the life insurance company's money. I'm utilizing their money and I'm guaranteeing that loan with the death benefit. And so that is, that is really what this is all about. It's, it's just a form of leverage, right? Now, when I'm, when I'm paying 3.77 and I'm earning four, or I mean, when I'm paying four and I'm, I'm earning 3.77% on that, I can utilize that for income in retirement. So what he's saying here is right. Yeah, like I, I love the leverage idea. Like you don't actually withdraw money. And he, he said in the previous segment, like, um, you know, a taxable account would have to have a higher return to cover taxes, except for that you can borrow money against pretty much anything. You could borrow money against a car, a house, a taxable brokerage account. And as long as that debt is lower than the asset appreciation, technically you're not losing anything. You're not losing money, right? So yeah, you could do this in his plan. I mean, he presented a 4% loan rate against his 3.7% gains, which is not a positive number. You could do better in the market, just regular stock market. But um, yeah, the, he's not lying here. It's just not a great vehicle to do this with. I guess my call to action now, my question to you is, after seeing all this stuff, argue with me, please. I'm Dave Ramsey, people. If you watch to this point in time and you disagree with me, please in the comment section below, tell me where you think I'm wrong, but lay it out. Don't just call me an idiot. Don't just tell me I'm wrong. Don't just tell me I don't get it. I want you to explain anything I just said that doesn't make sense, that is factually inaccurate to you. Tell me where you think I'm wrong and let's have a conversation about it because I'm happy to go deeper. Oh, man, this idiot just doesn't get it. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I'm not the biggest Dave Ramsey fan. I like Dave Ramsey and what he has to say. But in fact, I wanted this to work because of the fact that Dave Ramsey just didn't like it. And I went on a mission to try and figure out how to make this work and where it makes sense. And I couldn't figure it out. And now I'm kind of seeing the reason why I'm having a hard time figuring this out. And it's because he's selling it like it's a savings account. And if we don't care about the death benefit part, let's ignore that part because we could buy that on our own. Even with the gains we have from other investments, we could buy health and we could buy life insurance that does better stuff for cheaper. We don't have to worry about that part. So let's concentrate on the fact that pretty much this entire plan is about spending money to get a savings account that has a higher yield than the average savings account, which is cool. I mean, 
I guess the problem is, is I don't accept the premise that you should keep funding a savings account. In fact, you should do the opposite thing. So like, let's rewind it back to what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish and then see if we can fit this in. What we want to do is invest as much into things that are, it's okay to invest in things that are volatile. These guys are going to struggle with this one because volatility actually produces better returns. It's not riskier simply because it's volatile. It just means that it goes up and down at a higher rate. That's all it means. But the market is consistently going up. And one of the biggest reasons it's consistently going up is that more people exist. Um, we have inflationary assets. So as you know, more money is printed, that will cause these things to float, which means they kind of react to inflation by default. And then we're continually producing new technologies, which is making things cheaper. And then we can create more things, better things, which is adding value to the economy. So we're always going to see like a pretty solid upwards tick. Maybe it, you know, will hit like a depression. 2008 was pretty rough. 2000 was pretty rough. 2020 was pretty rough. We're kind of in a recession now, but then that just means we have better opportunities to buy low. So our opportunity, what we were looking for is something that gives us the highest return possible for the lowest amount of risk that we can find that is great over long periods of time because we're playing the long game. We are actually playing the long game here. We're not playing this like, let's have a ever-growing savings account slash emergency fund game, right? So as at the initial point, when we put our money into the market, we don't want to ever take it out. So the reason for an emergency fund is twofold. One is so that we don't take out debt in the case of emergencies. That's most people's default. You have an emergency, you take out debt, now you're behind the curve, right? The second one is so that we don't actually have to withdraw our assets. So if we have assets in like the index funds for the S&P 500, for example, we don't want to take that money out because that will uh, kill the compounding over time. We want to be able to continue to put money in to the best of our ability. So in the case of emergency, we don't want to touch that. So those are the two reasons to have an emergency fund. It doesn't need to be growing forever, but more importantly, you can take out loans against a taxable brokerage account, which means that as your taxable brokerage account gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you can use loans as your emergency fund. Or in my case, I could do loans against my real estate and use that for my emergency fund. Um, I got cash flow from my real estate. I can use that for an emergency fund. There's lots of options that I have now that my entire asset group has grown over time that I can use for emergency funds that the amount of cash I actually want to hold on to is slowly dwindling. I want to hold on to less cash the further along I get and the more wealth that I have. So this is the exact opposite of what I want to do with an emergency fund. I don't want to grow it. I want it to decrease over time. I want more cash to be working for me and producing more appreciation, more wealth for the future. So because of that, this really kills opportunities. That's the biggest problem. If we're going to pay a lot of money for a savings account and then be required to continually put money into this savings account for the rest of our lives, basically, I mean, towards the end there, like the, it took them like 28 years, you had to continually put 12 grand into this account. If we're going to do that for a good chunk of our lives and all we're seeing is cash growth at a really small rate, it doesn't make any sense mathematically. So I'm going to show you, I, I took his numbers. I stole them. I put them in a spreadsheet. Like I promised, I'm going to show you these numbers and I'm going to show you why I don't think you should pick whole life as anything. There's no reason for it. Okay. There's a lot of numbers here and I'm going to do my best to try and break it down. But the first thing I did is I'm going to back test it to the year 1992. So 
It's going to be as if someone started Chris's plan in 1992. At 46 years old, like we talked about, this is the current year of the plan. So first year, second year, et cetera. And then we see the contract premium is exactly what he laid out all the way through. So eventually we get to zero if we scroll down far enough. So cumulative premium. So just like his chart, we can see how much it's growing. And I'm going to assume that his cash value, there it is, net cash value, is actually going to grow at the rate he says it's going to grow, despite the fact that that's not promised. It's not guaranteed. We're going to assume that it actually does grow that rate. So these are all the same numbers that you saw over in his chart and his graphs when we took a look at those. And we can see that somewhere around year seven right here is when we start balancing out. And now our money is starting to at least match what it was that we had initially. If you look over here, this is the amount of growth between years. So initially we put in 72 grand. We now have 66 grand. We lost $6,000. The next year we lost nearly $200. And then we start to see some slow growth. So I added the actual percent returns for each year. So we start off with negative 8%. You lose 8% in year one immediately. And then it starts to grow slowly over time and it mellows out around 3.9. The average total ROI is 2.81%. That's the average over the lifespan of this product. And the worst rates are on the front end, which means that it grows slowest during the most important times of growth. Not great. Um, I added in the real S&P 500 numbers here or estimated S&P 500 return. So this is based off of a 10% return rate. And we could see pretty quickly, he has in uh, 131,000 over here, we have 189, 146, 220. And if we skip down to the bottom, he'll have $798,000 in his plan and we'll have $3.5 million. So that's a tremendous opportunity cost. And that's the part that he's not referring to here. What could you be doing with this cash except for paying an insurance company to have a crazy high emergency fund that really, once you start getting to these high numbers, you could take out like what, 60 grand in debt and it wouldn't affect any of this stuff. It's not that big of a deal. 100 grand in debt, 200 grand. I mean, realistically, you could take out up to 65%, but if you were to stay conservative and stay below like, I don't know, 50, you could still take out over a million dollars and still have it not impact your plan at all. But as some of you might point out, um, I'm using estimated, you know, S&P 500 returns, which is using the average each and every year. He used, you know, kind of something similar, like a projected return, a projected dividend return. So I think that's only fair to compare those two. So let's go take a look at a graph real fast of what this looks like. So here's those same numbers just put into like a nice neat graph for you. The gray line at the bottom is the amount of cash that you have. The blue line is your whole life plan. And the green line is if you were to just have put your money into the S&P 500 and index funds. Obviously, we want to put our money into the green line. Yeah, they're going to say returns are never guaranteed, but... The market is a good, solid, consistent place to put your money. And yeah, it's volatile, which means it goes up and down. That gives us the ability to buy more when things are on sale, which increases our growth over time. And it's one of the reasons why we can produce such a high amount of returns over time to the point where we're like magnitudes higher than a whole life plan. 
But I understand that that's not entirely fair. Like we have to look at the S&P, you know, I have, you know, the actual dates, 1992, we have to look at the actual S&P 500. So even though we're using his estimated returns at this cash value, we'll go ahead and use the real S&P 500 data. And that's over here because I figured out what the S&P 500 returns are were per each year. There you go. And so you could see how much money is gained or lost. And obviously you could see the volatility. Like here in 2009, we had a negative 35%. That's that 2008 crash right there. And the 2010, we have an increase of 31. The year after that, 16. So you got some great increases here following that crash. And we could see the real value over here. So obviously in the crash, we see some losses. There's the volatility. We have, we went from 691,000 down to 459,000, which you know, is a real bummer. Not a huge fan of that. But when we get to the end, we could see it's actually pretty similar to our estimates. Um, in 2002 or 2022, it's almost spot on, right? It's actually more money than what we estimated. And then it balances itself back out because we had a bad year in 2023. Or I guess it was a bad year in 2022 since 2023 is, you know, this is just starting. So as you can see, even with market volatility, we have a lot more money than a uh, than a whole life plan. Let's see what a graph would look like for um, the real S&P 500 returns. So there you go. So what you're seeing is the same graph as before. You have the gray line, which is the amount of money you put in, the blue line, which is whole life, and the green line, which is the S&P 500. And as you notice, the green line never actually dips below the blue line, even in the worst years, like this right here, which is the 2008 crash doesn't even dip below the blue line and it immediately starts bouncing back. In fact, it only takes, let's see, from 60 to 62. So two years, less than two years to get your money back to where it was before the drop. And then we see some epic gains going in afterwards. And we see a little bit of a drop right here, which is why I'm buying as much as possible because I know that it's probably gonna end up looking something like this. It's gonna start spiking back up. You can even see the line is almost identical to 2008 and it'll start climbing back up here pretty soon, we're gonna do pretty well. And I get that that's speculative, but everything's speculative when it comes to investing. That's just the nature of it. So my last column here is what you could do in a basic high yield savings account, which returns a 1.5% return. That's the average return. In fact, the average return is actually higher than 1.5%. It's closer to two. And right now it's higher than 4%, which is better than uh, whole life, but you have whole life at 2.8% returns on average and you paid to get that extra like 0.8 basically. But we could see because we don't pay any money for a high yield savings account that initially our money is actually higher and it takes a while for that to flip. Let's take a look at that in a graph. All right, so here's the graph. So I chunked down the amount of time to just about 10 years, a little over 10 years so that you can see what's happening because at the beginning, it's so close to each other that it almost is negligible except for the loss. So you're going to see the blue line is actually below the gray line. The gray line is the amount of money you put in. The blue line is whole life. So you can see that it takes until year seven for those two to cross each other. Meanwhile, the green line, which is the high yield savings account, is actually above all of those <laughs> until you hit about year 10. So year 10, 
uh, somewhere around year 10, 11 is when the whole life insurance policy actually starts to do better than a high yield savings account. And I would argue that's the time that you need the, the actual savings less. So by the time the whole life plan gets to the point where you no longer really need the savings, that's when it starts to perform, which is why this policy or this plan doesn't make sense. And getting whole life is just paying somebody to really stifle your returns. So I went through as much data as I could. I know it's a lot of information. It's a lot of data. And I know that their responses are going to be like, look, you can't, you know, you can't depend on the market to actually keep performing this way. But if the market can't keep performing, the whole life company is going to probably also reduce their returns. And we're probably in a lot worse of a place if we can't have our economy continue to grow. We're probably in a place where we're going to be in a lot more trouble somehow or another. So I don't feel like creating some sort of like investment vehicle, and I'm going to call it an investment vehicle. I know that ticks him off, but creating an investment vehicle because you're putting constant amount of money into it to get such a low return and then claiming that that's your stable base and that you're going to use that base in order to like, you know, solidify your entire investment profile when back testing it shows that the actual returns, even on volatile years, we don't actually see losses greater than the highest points on our whole life plan. Why would we put money into the whole life plan? It does not make sense. So this is what we need. We need to make sure we're not taking out unnecessary debt. So non-leveraged debt like credit card debt in case of emergencies. We need to make sure that we invest and we continue to invest and we don't touch that money once it gets in there. You could take out loans against your policy if you really felt like you needed something. Um, If you're going to buy real estate, like he gave that example, using his whole life to buy real estate, you could use your brokerage loans to buy real estate if you really wanted to. And then you could do all the exact same stuff. But at the end... I'll have $3 million by just investing myself in the S&P 500. He'll have 700 grand, or I think it was almost 800 grand. So my, my, my plan has almost four times the growth over a 30-year period. Four times, right? Which means if the market crashes by 50%, it's still twice as high as his whole life plan. So where's the advantage? I keep asking this question for people. I got into a debate recently where he's telling me like the stability part is the part that's the advantage and you're paying for that and you got to get over the fact that you're paying for it. You need the stability bit. But I can't see a point in which this becomes something that I need. What I'm trying to do and what I think most people should try and do is invest as much as possible and create conservative ways to ensure that you're not over leveraging yourself or you're not putting yourself in a situation where you have to withdraw that money. That's really it. So emergency fund at the beginning to ensure that you don't have to withdraw that money. And then you can kind of taper that off towards the end and you could put it into things with higher returns, better yields, real estate, for example. And that's about it guys. So if you can't prove that this is a good emergency fund, which I can't see how it is, I can't even see how it's a good savings account at a 2.8% average rate where It's really weighted off the front. Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I would much rather put my money in things that have good returns so that I can end with four times the amount of wealth that someone who picks this plan is going to pick. I just don't see it. So I, I guess my final summary is this. Like I disagree with Dave because the whole life stuff does everything that it, they say that it does. It just isn't very good. You could do all this stuff on your own without paying someone for much simpler 
without having to go through all these steps and all these complications and risk the wrong company or the wrong setup or whatever, right? You could just invest and forget about it. So I do think whole life actually works, which is why he can sit there and say, like, show me where it doesn't work. I just don't think it's a good platform to be using it. And that's basically it. And because of the fact that these salesmen don't know outside their own plan, when like even when you tell them, like, I could take loans out against a taxable brokerage to avoid taxes if I want to, and the rates and returns on my brokerage are better than any kind of whole life or IUL, and they don't, they, they've never heard of this before. Or like, hey, I can give all my assets over to the sum of $3 million totally tax-free. That's totally new to them. It's because all they know is that their one thing does the thing that they say that it does, and then they just say, this thing is the best thing. you got to have it. When it turns out there are alternatives that are actually much better. And most people, most wealthy people that I talk to, that DC talks to, that we all try to like communicate with, have all written this off as being something that's a waste of time. There's no reason for it. So I don't know if there's a use case except for maybe some really wealthy people trying to transfer more than $13 million and that's about it so after that i appreciate you guys sticking around if you learned something um please like comment argue with me it's all good i'm gonna send this over to chris and life 180 we'll see if he has a response i think it might be really interesting we can get a good lively debate going and see what happens but um i know his response is going to be something like uh, life happens man you can't put everything onto a spreadsheet and you can't account for everything that could possibly happen and you know if i was to like do my finances in a way where i was like in my own feelings i might call that a scarcity mindset see what i did there